This Day in History class is a production of iHeartRadio. Hello, and welcome to This Day in History class, a show that raises the curtain on everyday history and lets it take a bow. I'm Gabe Luzier, and today we're looking at the rise and fall of vaudeville, a fusion of song and dance, comedy, and novelty acts that delighted audiences at the turn of the 20th century. The day was February 28, 1883. One of the earliest vaudeville theaters in the United States opened on the second floor of the Gaiety Museum in Boston, Massachusetts. In the years ahead, its operator, B.F. Keith, would grow the business into an empire, launching a chain of vaudeville theaters all across New England. His success helped establish this new form of mainstream entertainment, something that would later be called the heart of American show business. If you're under a certain age, I won't say which one, you're probably wondering what exactly is vaudeville. In simplest terms, it's a form of variety entertainment performed live on stage. A vaudeville show was typically made up of a series of separate, unrelated acts covering a wide range of performing arts. In a single show, you might see singers, dancers, comedians, ventriloquists, jugglers, magicians, you name it. Everything from trained animal acts to dramatic readings to acrobats. It was all on the table. Variety was the selling point, and variety is what you got. This grab-bag approach to entertainment got its start in France in the late 19th century, albeit with much more refined acts than their transatlantic counterparts. In the 1880s, the theater style made its way to Canada and the United States, where it became a popular brand of entertainment for the next 50 years. The term vaudeville can be traced back to two possible origins, both of them French. The first is the phrase Val de Vire, or the Valley of the River Vire. That's an area of France where a famous satirical songwriter lived in the 15th century. His songs mocking village life and local residents later became synonymous with the region itself. That association may have given rise to vaudeville, as a kind of catch-all term for any type of playful live performance. The second possibility carries a similar meaning, but is much more straightforward. The French phrase voix de ville means voice of the city, which works pretty well as a description of vaudeville. The types of acts that characterized American vaudeville had their roots in other working-class sources of entertainment, including concert saloons, freak shows, striptease acts, and minstrelsy. However, unlike those forms of traveling theater, vaudeville shows tended to be more family-friendly and less exploitative of different cultures. For example, vaudeville actually welcomed racially diverse actors, instead of resorting to blackface representations. As you might expect, this attracted a different and more civil kind of crowd the type that didn't heckle performers, demand encores, or hurl shoes and tomatoes at the stage. In this way, vaudeville was what you might call middle-brow entertainment. It wasn't lewd, crass, or offensive, but it wasn't exactly high-minded either. So, not a strip show, but not the opera either. 
One of the first people to take this cleaner approach to variety theater was a man named Tony Pastor. He had been a comic singer since age six when he first appeared at P.T. Barnum's American Museum in New York City. As an adult, Pastor opened his own theater in the city. It was called the 14th Street Theater, and Pastor billed it as, quote, the first specialty and vaudeville theater of America, catering to polite tastes, aiming to amuse, and fully up to current times and topics. The theater would group up to a dozen acts together into different sets, or bills, and then run through those sets continuously, all day long, for up to 12 hours. That way, if you missed a performer you wanted to see, they'd be on again a few hours later, and in the meantime, you could catch a completely different show, or two, or three. Two years later, Benjamin Franklin Keith adapted this business model when he brought vaudeville to Boston. The New Hampshire native had broken into show business as a carnival barker, traveling with shows from town to town. He later worked in the popular Dime Museums of New York City, where visitors would pay 10 cents to view all manner of curious exhibits, including shrunken heads and captured mermaids. Eventually, Keith moved to Boston and opened his own collection of oddities, known as the Gaiety Museum. But Keith had grander ambitions than phony sideshows. He saw the success of newer vaudeville acts, like the one at Pastor's Theater, and thought they would be a big hit in Boston, which at the time was still a very puritanical town. In fact, Boston was so well known for its wholesome sensibilities the traveling performers would often prepare a cleaned-up version of their acts, known as a Boston version. To cash in on this family-friendly market, Keith opened a second-floor theater at his museum and began hosting vaudeville shows. The venture was a huge success, and two years later, Keith had his eyes set on opening a second, dedicated theater in Boston. He partnered with an old friend from his circus days named Edward Franklin Albee, and together they leased the famous Bijou Theater for more vaudeville shows. Less than a decade later, in 1894, the business partners decided to ditch their lease and open their very own vaudeville venue. It was called, appropriately enough, B.F. Keith's Theater. Tony Pastor may have been the first to introduce vaudeville to American audiences and clean up its act, but it was Keith who turned it into a national sensation, not to mention a highly lucrative business. He and Albee went on to establish a chain of lavish theaters, not just in Boston, but all throughout the northeastern United States. With a network of theaters in place, Keith was able to make regional and national contracts with performers setting up tours of scheduled shows for them at all of his various venues. By 1900, the Keith Albee Vaudeville Circuit was the most well-known and financially successful in the country. Through all that success, Keith and Albee never lost sight of the moral standards that set their theaters apart, even if some of their performers would have liked a little more leeway for their routines. But the idea of inoffensive entertainment was considered so crucial to vaudeville that managers at Keith Albee theaters would frequently reject scripts that were deemed too impolite or unrefined. Those rejected ideas would then be sent back to the performers who submitted them. 
The use of blue envelopes for this practice led to the phrase blue material, which refers to bawdy or obscene content. Of course, even with high standards, nothing lasts forever. For vaudevillians, the ending came gradually, as the arrival of new forms of entertainment slowly muscled them off the stage. Broadway reviews, silent films, and radio programs kicked off the decline in the mid-1920s as actors, dancers, and singers began to switch to these less demanding mediums. By the 1930s, movies with sound, or talkies, had become the new dominant source of entertainment for Americans. Many longtime vaudeville performers had already jumped to film and radio by that point, including Ed Wynn, Buster Keaton, Jack Benny, and the Marx Brothers. They largely carried on the work they'd been doing in vaudeville shows, just with higher pay and better working conditions. As for vaudeville theater owners, like Keith and Albie, many of them eventually bowed to pressure from a changing entertainment industry and made the switch from live acts to movie screenings. It wasn't all bad. There was actually more profit to go around without the added costs of lighting, music, stagehands, booking fees, and all the other factors that made hosting live performances so expensive. One of the last vaudeville venues to switch to a film-only policy was the Palace Theater in Midtown Manhattan. It had opened in 1929 and was considered by many to be the flagship location of the Keith Albee Empire. The theater shifted to film presentations in late 1932, marking the beginning of the end of vaudeville's golden age. However, nearly a century later, though often uncredited, Many of the songs, gags, stunts, and pratfalls made famous by vaudeville still live on in other forms of entertainment, including cartoons and film. The show must go on, as the saying goes, and thankfully for vaudeville fans, it still very much does. I'm Gabe Lusier, and hopefully you now know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. If you enjoyed today's show, consider following us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at TDIHCshow. And if you have any comments or suggestions, you can send them my way at thisday at iheartmedia.com. Thanks to Chandler Mays for producing the show, and thanks to you for listening. I'll see you back here again tomorrow for another day in history class. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.